Welcome to the new Innovation Matters podcast series of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe. Innovation Matters aims to engage leading experts on a range of topics to explore how innovation could drive sustainable development in Eurasia and beyond. Our episodes explore ongoing trends, opportunities and challenges, such as the fourth industrial revolution, the sharing economy, the circular economy, autonomous vehicles and digitization. Welcome to this edition of Innovation Matters. In this podcast, we're going to look at the transition process in the former Soviet Union and former communist countries to find out what's happening now, what the road ahead is for these countries, especially with a view to innovation. Our guest today is Professor Alexander Gavorkian from St. John's University in New York. His research areas are macroeconomic policy, economic development, labor migration, and especially with a focus on post-socialist transition economies. His recent book is called Transition Economies, Transformation, Development and Society in Eastern Europe and the Former Soviet Union, published by Oxford in 2018. The book gives a holistic historical view of transformation in 29 countries and an overview of the vastly different outcomes for economic policy that we have seen across these countries. Alec, welcome to the show. Hello, Anderson. Thank you very much. Thanks for inviting me and for this opportunity to talk about transition economies. Congratulations on your book. There are not many books like this. It gives a very comprehensive overview of economic development in the Soviet Union, but even going back to the pre-Soviet Union times. And it tries to explain some of the divergences that we've seen in the transition process. And you note in particular the importance of understanding the enormity of the task of transforming from a plant to an increasingly market economy, as we have seen over the past 30 years. And of course, now, 30 years down the line, this is the time to look at what has happened and what we can learn about it for economic development today, for sustainable development, and in particular for innovation policy. Could you please explain your most recent book in a few words for uninitiated? What is it about? And also what drove you to write it? And why did you look at transition economies? What fascinates you about them? Sure. Uh, but I think you've already captured a couple of the points in, in your introduction. But let me try to elaborate. So indeed, 30 years since the launch of reforms is a time to be taken very seriously because one could say, uh, so let's review the results and talk about the results. Let's maybe try to learn what we did right, what we did wrong, and uh, what went right and what went wrong and so on. Depends on who is sort of thinking about it. But there's also something else. And it started as a very personal sort of introduction first, because through my work and my research, I was coming across sort of a wall of sort of a historical discussion on these countries in Eastern Europe, Central Europe, former Soviet Union, and, and sort of their fate and their economic development process. It's sort of like, let's just forget everything that was happening before. We are in the year of, pick a year, 2005, 2010, whatever, and uh, things are supposed to be this way. So now we're in 2021, things are supposed to be this way, and we're basically judging these countries that have this enormity of factors and circumstances coming together, right? And we're judging or trying to assess those countries from the positions of what we know today. So my point really was that we should try to move away a little bit from sort of sensationalist discussion of things. It's quite popular to uh, assign labels or view things from a very specific perspective, but instead take a more of a uh, objective 
and historically informed approach. So that's what I'm trying to build in this book, sort of this narrative and an analytical narrative saying that, look, how you interpret the results is up to you, but here's how these countries got to this situation right now. This path of getting to a certain situation is very important. It teaches us how complex the questions that we are touching on in economic policy are, that we cannot simply rush through things because they make sense on paper, something that is a convenient result. It turns out economics may be a science, and uh, it justly so a social science, meaning that we're dealing with real people, and real people sometimes make decisions or uh, take certain actions in very unpredictable ways, right? So turning around such a massive locomotive of, of a society, which was the socialist society, was not a simple task. It was clear, of course, to people who were working on this in the beginning, but there were no shortcuts. And that's the point that I try to raise in the book. And it is also important today because today we discuss economic policy and the value of this discussion is good that I try to bring up in the book. I think is relevant, not just for that part of the world, but for developing countries as well. Thank you, Alec. Indeed, in the book, you do an excellent job of illustrating the importance and implications of path dependency and the long-term nature of institutional and structural change by comparing and contrasting the newly independent countries that emerged out of the Soviet Union. And in fact, it's striking how often we think that you can simply take something that works, maybe in a developed country, such as the Silicon Valley clusters and incubators, and think that they would work in a completely different context. We use the term isomorphic mimicry to refer to an institution that looks like it has a certain function that maybe has the same organization charge, the same keywords, the same roles, but it doesn't actually fulfill that function. And I think we see that quite a bit, especially in innovation policy. Tell us a bit more about the transition that had already started before the fall of communism and how it panned out. Right. In the book, I start with the most obvious group of countries, and that is the group of countries within the Russian Empire. And of course, Russia is the main economy within that. So there's a little bit focus, especially initial focus of, in the book on that part of the world. And then gradually, especially after World War II, I bring in Central and Eastern Europe as they become more aligned with and become part of this socialist economic system. But that is also the reason why it is important, because what we see happening since, let's say, late 19th century and then even after the revolution, one could say there is some continuity, actually, because there is a push for reforms and then there's the step back. But from this system point of view, it is interesting how this transformation was ongoing and then sort of spreading, starting sort of in the core and then spreading into the peripheries. It is also interesting to note how, I guess we would say, innovative the system was because initially there was this pressure with the war communism and that type of the economy. And then there was the new economic policy and then there's the industrialization debates and development economists are somewhat divided on this issue. Now, of course, there's the counterfactual of China as far as industrialization. But the 1930s, many find this as the greatest success right, of the economic policy in terms of mobilizing the resources and building this industrial complex of large scale that in many parts is still functioning across the countries of primarily former Soviet Union for now. What needs to be added was, of course, the massive human toll and, and the suffering that went in parallel with this. And that has to be remembered. And then World War II added to that. 
And then something interesting happens. And this is the late 1940s and, and early 1950s. And this is where the search for new economic models, one might say, or new economic policy approaches, new economic measures takes a different turn. What we see as far as industrialization, for example, in Central and Eastern Europe, now within the socialist project, is something milder version of what happened in the Soviet Union in 1930s, to the extent that significant parts of sectors within the economy were allowed to stay in private hands. For example, if you think of agriculture in Poland. Yet the promise, this is what we discussed with conferences and with students, was that one, it is important to understand what was going on as far as all these measures, industrialization and such, was the promise of the socialist system. And the promise was that, to simplify something that is somewhat complex, but to simplify it, the promise was that everyone is supposed to live and enjoy life. The fact that we're all coming together guarantees that. So the promise was to deliver benefits, better living standards to largely agricultural populations within a short period of time. Right. So with that comes very important attention to uh, raising literacy rates, but also education. And this was also innovative because things were guaranteed by the state. Workers and industrial sectors, heavy industry or oil rigs, wherever it might be, would work during the day and be able to go take classes at night if they wanted to in the evening. And uh, that was provided by the state. Right. There was this, and then there was an infrastructure created for people to accomplish this. Thank you, Alec. Indeed, as you recognize, and as many other people recognize, in the first decades of the communist order, there were several achievements, uh, several grand ambitions, especially around capital accumulation, investment into heavy areas, and reallocation from extremely low productivity areas, such as basic agriculture, to higher productivity areas and higher capital intensive areas. And you also saw some absorption of technologies such as uh, the Fiat and Togliatti factory that was set up in the Soviet Union. But also, as we all know, over time, and especially starting in the 60s, the Soviet Union stagnated and fell behind. Talk about the reasons for the stagnation and the role of incentives, the role of central planning to either constrain or to promote innovation. I guess let's start with uh, what people probably know or associate the Soviet economy with first, and that is the five-year plans. And the five-year plans were introduced at the peak of uh, the beginning of the industrialization. The idea is not bad. I mean, I worked in corporate finance and we always operated based on the plan. And we always, in the capitalist corporation, we had a one-year plan, we had a five-year plan, rather we had one-year forecast, five-year plan, and that was quite normal. And we were fine-tuning number of resources, hours worked, projects, and so on. So for the lack of better analogy, for the listeners, it might be helpful to think about expanding something like this on the scale of an entire economy. And what's interesting is that it actually worked at first because we are dealing with, again, remember, largely agricultural, rural economies that are building basically their industry from grounds up, right? And this is in, in the entire cities appeared in, in the midst of today's slightly changing permafrost areas across Siberia and then other areas or in Kazakhstan across the steppes and so on. Just on the flat ground, all of a sudden there's a city with hundreds and thousands of people living there and there's some type of an industry and so on. In other words, there was this sort of the big push approach that worked initially that set the tone for the rest of the economy and that's quite important. But I'm sure 
somebody listening to us will know about Robert Allen's, Bob Allen's Farm to Factory book. And he goes into in-depth, in-detail, sort of step-by-step of how the five-year plans were brought together, then how the economy, the Soviet economy moved from a rural area focused to more of an industrial. Now, to continue with the general stereotype, the way things worked was that things were planned at the top. So we had to produce that many cars, we had to produce that many tractors. What was needed? Well, we needed certain parts. Let's count how many and we produced that. So the price mechanism was not really primary. You could say throughout the system, but also initially since the industrialization, because things were planned. What is also important to understand about the plan was how wide the scope of this planning system was. And this is where the differences between the Soviet experience and the Central and Eastern European experience is crucially important to appreciate, especially when we talk about why some countries have integrated into a larger global economy, let's put it this way, and others are not as successful in doing so since after the 1990s reforms, right? And the reason is that the Soviet Union was planning on the scale of the entire Soviet Union, which was the the different comprise of the different republics, right? For the same tractor, parts could be produced in, let's say, some parts in Ukraine, some parts, technical parts in Armenia. The whole thing is assembled somewhere in Russia and then is being sent for purposes of use in Kazakhstan or something like that. So everyone participated. And as long as this central allocative mechanism functioned, and this is getting into the 19, late 50s and early 60s, right? As long as mechanism functioned, things were more or less working out okay. The plan implied that the factory managers were in constant communication with the planning authorities, and there were several layers of this. There was a state plan planning committee, then depending on which industry the factory operated and there was a dedicated ministry dealing with those questions. So the managers were asked to report on plan figures. Now, fast forward, because the 1930s was this peak of the whole movement, and some could even say there was too much enthusiasm with the example of Stahanov, who mined so much coal. I think it was more than 60 norms of uh, coal within a day or something like that. But Gradually, the managers moved to under-reporting the plan figure. In other words, if you report to the central authorities that plan to produce 10 tractors, and then when the time comes, you produce 15 or 20 tractors, which would be your realistic capacity, well, it looks like you've overachieved the plan, and that's a great something to brag about, right? And then a great achievement, but also maybe to receive an, a premium or some type of a bonus. Now, It also led to inefficiencies, right? Because on the scale of the economy, and keep in mind what I mentioned earlier, the promise of the socialist system, the living standards, fairness and in distribution and so on. If this is the case, if we're dealing with factories that are underreporting their true capacity, it creates a situation of inefficiency. Labor productivity is also declining because there's no need apparently to innovate. There's no need to replace the technology. In other words, What we find out later in the 70s, especially in the early 80s, was that the Soviet Union very much followed a well-known saying in English, which is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. As long as the system functioned, things worked well. The complexity, rather, of products and the output was growing, was increasing. Uh, As population grew, right, so did the consumer demand was increasing. 
that required the factories and the enterprises to become more productive, to become more diverse in terms of their output. And that was not really happening because factories were run, again, in the central system where all that was needed was calculation in units and just generic output. So the Kasigian reforms, there's actually started with article uh, in Pravda of all the places by uh, one economist, Yevsey Lieberman, I think the title was Plan, Profit and Premium or Bonus, where the argument was made that we should move quite a bit of responsibility in terms of managing the enterprises to the actual managers. In other words, if the system before was that all that was required from the managers were the plan figures, and we take centrally, we take care of the redistribution of things, the outputs that the factory produces specifically. Now the proposal was that let the managers figure out how. There will be a a guaranteed state purchase. Again, I'm trying to say all this with modern terminology, right? There would be a guaranteed state purchase system certain minimum and the rest the intention was for the companies to be able to uh, sell uh, freely in the market they would be creating on their own the reforms were tried as experiment a couple of hundred of enterprises and they worked with different sort of degrees of success the light industry just textiles and clothing items and things like this which is more consumer oriented and much closer to the final consumer did a little bit better than let's say heavy industry and mining and things like that Thank you. In fact, book by Bob Allen from Farm to Factory is, is a very good and detailed description of exactly how the system worked at the micro level. But we still have the problem that everything was more or less decided from the top or at least strongly influenced by political considerations, at least as much as efficiency or market signals. The prices were not there to guide decisions and to guide capital flows into the most productive areas. So what did this mean from innovation? Apart from defense and a couple of areas, what did we get or what did the Soviet Union get from its relatively massive investment into science and what kind of reform efforts were done to improve the situation? So what went wrong then is that in the case of the Soviet Union, the system just collapsed and the rise of the search for national identity and the national elites which, by the way, is a byproduct of existence of the Russian Empire and and the Soviet Union in itself because of the population policies were corresponding to those time periods and each of those systems, which allocated people by their ethnic origin to their uh, specific geographies, right? So this rise, uh, those movements in the early 90s led to the breakdown of the communication networks pretty much between the countries. The West was seen as the new promise of the new model. And maybe that goes back to the lacking innovation and and lack of diversity in the consumer markets to simplify it to uh, a very basic level that we just talked about referring to the 1970s. And here's now access to the West and the Western markets that are very diverse and have all sorts of different opportunities. And very quickly, the realization came that the old technology that was in the factories and that kept the factories running within the Soviet Union was not capable to compete with sort of the higher efficiency higher and a more productive output that was coming from the West. Right? So instead, the, the immediate reorientation was towards trade. And there was a saying that trade is the driver of progress. 
sort of all great economies started with trade. There were many ways how to justify the situation that imports were increasingly substituting local domestic production, right? And this is something that we're dealing with today, especially in the smaller economies that are very much dependent on manufactured consumer uh, items from the rest of the world and relying on more or less either traditional or some niche sectors within their own economies. And that was the rise of the managerial, individual managers' capacity and capabilities as far as negotiating rate, negotiating resources for functioning of their enterprises. That is something that's very important because it did not necessarily lead to an autonomy of an enterprise or a corporation, but it did strengthen them. There would always be a political counterbalance. And so there was a little bit of the power struggle, if you will. There's the industrial sector and then the political sector in every region. And now imagine all of this just politically crumbles down and disappears. That was one of the key elements of it. Now, subsequent to this, where the rise in unemployment and as unemployment to double digits, incomes collapse, and that leads to collapse in consumption, collapse uh, in the social welfare and so on putting more demands on the governments. And if we talk about a small country government, so let's just have a generic idea of any one of them, the resources were very limited, right? So this is where countries start to borrow increasingly and for the promise of future reforms to at least sustain their economies to some extent. What I wanted to mention was that it was slightly different in the case of Central and Eastern Europe, because, and specifically, of course, the ones that were more industrialized. So again, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic. And that was that the industries that were built there since 1950s, first, were relatively newer, but second, they had already been integrated with the European markets. Not so openly, perhaps, as one might wish, but much more in, in open ways than, let's say, an industry or any type of industry in the Caucasus or Central Asia might have a dream of. So that played a role. They were through the socialist period, right? There was trade between uh, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic with uh, Western Europe, one-on-one, sort of not going through Moscow, but individually. And I think this autonomy played an important role in the subsequent integration into the global economy that was much more smoother compared to other countries. So I think that that's important to keep in mind. Thank you, Alec. So you note that for the reasons that we discussed, there was actually quite a bit of innovation in the Soviet Union, but it was not systematic and it was driven by political will or by strategic needs such as in the defense area. Other sectors lagged behind. Uh, They were not able to compete, especially because prices were not guiding resource allocation systematically. And even with some of the reform efforts, they were not basic and fundamental enough to correct the state of affairs. So against this background, communism fell and you had this existing structure that had to compete in a new environment, often in a globalized and liberalized environment. And several states had to deal not only with this, but also with sudden independence and with nation building. And the result, as you note, is often called the most disastrous uh, fall in output, at least the past century and maybe even in history. And for many countries, it took decades to regain even the levels of 1990. So describe this process for our listeners and what happened. Yeah, sure. Thanks for this question. So first of all, I think I should say that 
whoever is listening uh, should not really think that we are justifying any of inaction or things like this. No, but what I'm trying to sketch here is a bigger picture, right? Rather than assigning blame to one specific group of individuals or certain events, there's actually a complexity. And that's the difficult task to keep this complexity in mind. So as far as the different approaches, I was once presenting many years before I actually even worked on the book, I was some, presenting something, one of my papers that dealt with this part of the world. And I mentioned how the 90s was the very difficult time and how a lot of problems stemmed from that. And somebody in the audience said, well, what's the big problem? You know, they were in socialism and then just, you know, they moved to capitalism. It's almost like, why didn't the authorities make an announcement to people that, you know, tomorrow is going to be capitalism? So this is where I completely forgot the paper that I was presenting, and I just focused on this question, and people saw me interested, let's put it this way, in <laughs> this discussion. But it is essentially this view, right? Students of history, it's very hard for us to say that, oh, this should have been done. Okay, sure. I mean, rather it's easier to say, but it's very hard to actually say that things would have been somewhat better, different, in, or guarantee that improvement. The Big Bang shock therapy, a set of reforms and which eventually would fit within this narrative of Washington consensus, the Ten Commandments, so to speak. That seemed that was that constituted the foundational knowledge, right, of the expert community at the time. One other phrase that is a bit controversial, seems to be controversial to me, is when people refer to what happened in the 90s as the natural experiment, because I tend to uh, avoid experiments conducted on people <laughs> and entire societies. But that seems to be the attitude, right? Okay, so here's a set of reforms that we think should work, and this is how it should work, and we just need to fine-tune and balance and then sequence the reforms and all will be well. But as I mentioned at the beginning, unfortunately, when we work with real people, that's not what happens. Anyone of us who has taught a class and starting a semester with a clearly defined syllabus realizes on the second day of the class that things are not going to go according to this detailed plan unless if we care about the result. right? So unless we're detached from it, that's fine. But if we care about our students actually learning we care about us working with students, then we will be adjusting as we move along. So I think that was missing, this realization that uh, you can't really sort of superimpose the reforms or changes to a system that is organically very different, right? Remember, managers were not really sure what, what does it mean to, yeah, we understand what it means to sort of run things on our own and count certain premiums towards us, right, in our favor, but we're not really sure what it means as far as procuring our own resources. What happened to the centrally guaranteed supply lines, right? How are we going to realize or sell our output? All that all of a sudden dawned upon everyone and um, within the immediate period was the chaos or as Blanchard and Kramer actually in, in their paper referred to it disorganization. And that's a very interesting paper from around that time. Now, the gradualist approach would argue that things have to be taken a bit slower, right? And uh, you're phasing into this, let's call it the capitalist system out of the socialist system. And uh, people wrote on this back in, uh, in the 90s, both at the international level policy discussions and also at the local within each country. But what their proposition was did not really seem as convincing because 
it was clear that the results would not be immediate and it would take more effort and time. And that was the opposite of what was really expected. And in fact, the population, despite being probably the most educated workforce ever <laughs> at that period, was also anxious, right? Gen on a very generic sort of uh, level, gen generalizing rather things, uh, was very anxious for the change, right? So some immediate results had to be delivered. And unfortunately, it did not really work out as was expected. So the debate is still on, by the way. And uh, this is where I mentioned that the relevance of this analysis goes stretches beyond the post-socialist economies. I mean, anyone who lived through the Greek debt crisis uh, situation recall the discussions about the IMF reforms and demands uh, on, on debt restructuring. And immediately this concept of Washington consensus comes in. Now, one might say, look, it's already outdated, but the elements of that austerity still remain. And I think it's important to keep the conversation going, not for the sake of critiquing or criticizing one or the other, but actually to be fully informed about what we're doing. Thank you very much, Alec. So we're approaching the end of this very interesting conversation, and uh, I wanted to bring a couple of points together also on my side. Our guest has been Alec Kevorkian, and uh, we've been discussing his work on uh, 30 years of post-communist transition and also the history behind economic development before that. We've been talking quite a bit about how history can help explain and elucidate what did and did not work in the turbulent transition, or as many have called it, one of the most disastrous transitions in history in many countries. So it's important to look beyond purely uh, indicators such as level of free market and look at the importance of institutions and understand that institutions evolve gradually and do not change from one day to another. We talked about the nature of the Soviet economy and innovation in the Soviet economy and how uh, the importance of five-year planning gave little flexibility for prices to give signals that could give entrepreneurs opportunities to react to challenges and fix problems systematically. This led to misallocation of resources and most of all undermined productivity growth and innovation. There were no incentives to innovate or to make substantial effort, the incentives were more to game the system. And although some partial reforms were undertaken, none of them were substantive enough to make a difference in this context. And because this was the nature of the economy and the nature of innovation, and because uh, the fall of communism came relatively quickly, many of these companies were not able to compete. And the result was then a massive drop in output and inequality and deindustrialization in most countries. And now 30 years down the line, we see strong divergences. And we also noted the importance of building the skills and opportunities for innovation and furthering regional integration to be essential over the next decades, especially in the context of the effort to move towards sustainable development. And this, of course, is at the core of where ECE's work on innovation, including our national innovation for sustainable development reviews are relevant. And I think that this discussion has helped highlight some of the problems and some of the historical detail and trends that we need to take into account when we look at national innovation systems and try to help our countries boost innovation for sustainable development. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Gavorkian.